Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are in the office with fellow Michigander, Andrew Schmiege. Dr. Andrew Schmiege. Lions fan or? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Tigers so, fan? Yeah. I don't know if you're like Mike where you just eclectically pick <coughs> teams that are winning when you're young. And... Uh, I don't know. I might be a, a little bit of that. <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't really, I don't have a preference, Michigan State or Michigan. So there's a little bit of that. I like to see the state do well. Well, that's good. Although I do, my dad is a farmer, and I remember going to Michigan State a lot as a kid for Quiz Bowl, where I had to... Yeah. Uh, ag stuff? Where I had ag stuff, right. Yeah. You had to know all this stuff about agriculture and animals and stuff, and I never knew any of it, but I still went to this thing and participated, and I don't know. They're fond memories, but it okay. wasn't fun when I was in it. Yeah, <laughs> but speaking of Michigan, by the way... It was a big day in Michigan the other day. You know what came down, Mike? Hmm. The Palace of Auburn Hills. Oh, oh did it really? No they started kidding. tearing it down. Oh. A lot of good memories in that. Yeah, so, me too. Well, we, let's not go down that hole because we may, we, may, <laughs> we may not come back to our main topic. About <laughs> Put down a free-for-all idea, though, of a stadium that you most wish you could have gone to that's now destroyed. Okay. Okay. I got it. I'll, I'll finish that later. Um, so, Dr. Schmigi teaches Spanish here at Wisconsin Lutheran College, and we'll, when we get to our main topic, we'll give you a chance to, uh, for you to tell the audience where you've been, where you went to school, and what your interests are. Kind of a, rena- can we call you a renaissance man? I don't know if we're allowed to use that term or not, but he's got interests that are, I'll take it. That are wide. On liberal arts college, we're all yeah. supposed to be renaissance people. Yeah, but I think he actually people. lives a Good point. Yeah, renaissance people. Renaissance thing. He's a renaissance th- thing creature creature yeah. creature well yeah okay but that assumes <laughs> a creator Ugh, i don't know he's just renaissance he's the the embodiment of the renaissance how about that that's good embodiment. jack of all trades yep yeah, okay so um we're gonna get there we're gonna talk about his dissertation hey, hey mike what am i doing you are <laughs> dipping your tea bag into your hot water <laughs> yeah making my tea you're very you're super classy thank you all right sometimes yeah okay um we asked you what your dissertation title was. It's very interesting. It's it's obviously has to do with Spanish, um, but has to do with Martin Luther, correct? A well, it bit? has to do with uh, early modern period and the relationship between the Christians and Muslims in yep. the early modern period. Basically having to do with um, Spanish folks sure. somehow related to Spain. Sure. So there's a, there's a bit of a hodgepodge aspect to my dissertation, but I was rereading it in anticipation of uh, today, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I got there. All right, that's I good. If, I don't yeah, know good. if I was as happy with it when I defended it as sure. I am now. Well, so. that's good. That's a that's a courageous thing to do it on. Most of us, we never want to read it again, so I appreciate <laughs> you putting in that work. I know it's, <laughs> it's hard to look at it after you put all that work yeah. into it. Yeah. So excellent. We're going to be talking about that as our main topic, and we're going to come back with um, with a free for all as well too. Something about uh, politics, but uh, and uh, Mike, I think we should uh, let the listeners know. I I uh, suffered a bit of trauma this morning. <laughs> trauma. Oh, would you uh, would you like to let the listeners know about? I your can do that. So of me, Mike? we were in some of the best uh, classrooms on campus, but they're. Uh, is a partition between two of these classrooms. I always say it's not the classroom, it's the class inside that yeah. meets. So, and we're doing fine. I was doing apologetics, you were doing, what was it, Pauline? Pauline epistles? Or Romans. Romans, you had Romans today. And uh, all of a sudden I hear Romans this. Romans chapter 7. Okay, in fact. I almost, 
So you must have been talking about the the simul. Yeah, and uh, the royal ass or something like that. Is that how you got? Well, anyway, I'll tell the story and then you can explain it. So there's this loud, annoying sound, which is not unusual coming from him. <laughs> Normally, I'm like, why? Like, wait, you distract my students, which is fine. I totally get that. That's it's because your, I have a preacher's voice. That's right. And that's fine. And my class often kind of giggles and I go, I don't know why he's so loud. But this was a sound that was super annoying. And so I banged on the partition. So then a little bit later, you came in and said. My group was, we, we do group discussion because I like to. uh Engage flip the, the classroom yeah, sometimes okay. and uh, <clears throat> as part of my pedagogical strategy. Yeah. And so, so during that break, I came over. You and came in and said, and interrupted my pedagogical <laughs> strategy and asked why I was banging on the wall. And I said, you were making loud noises. And you said, I was being a donkey. And I said, I always knew you were an ass. And then everybody laughed and you left. And, yeah, I thought that. So you're talking about the... Is ro- that a microaggression or mi- macroaggression? <laughs> it, was, it was just... It was, I think it's pretty macro. It was wit. It was just wit. I'm going to call it wit. I also felt somewhat complimented, though, because I was... That's the impression. Yeah. Were you trying to do like a royal at? What are you trying to do here? I was talking about how the Psalms and the Confessions talk about the, the old Adam. Yeah. The sinful nature, uh, or as I like to call it, the, the Mike and me, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> is like a, a stubborn donkey. And you Mike and me or Mike in <laughs> Mike me? Mike and me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, You should refer to that <laughs> in your classroom from now on, like shorthand for the, shorthand for the sinful nature is yeah. Mike. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was saying, well, what does a donkey do when it doesn't want to listen? And so I was saying it makes okay, that gotcha. noise and then it, so you got to yell at the donkey You've got to shame the donkey, maybe hit the donkey, not in an abusive way, but in a disciplinary <laughs> a fashion. Yeah. And uh, so I was getting at that. What sound did the you? The law what, is still for the old man, but there's now no condemnation for those. What sound of the donkey were trying to imitate when he was getting hit or yelled at or just when shamed. it was being obstinate? You know, obstinate. when it's when it's looking at you, and it's like, I don't. Did want you get it. on all fours? No. Why not? I, I had that knee injury. It's, it's not easy for me to do that anymore. <laughs> so um, it was it was it was loud enough that my class was wondering what. Well, because I was yelling at there. the donkey and then being the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's what happened this morning. Uh. Wade's not happy with me right now. <laughs> so um, hopefully we will. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> He will not be super passive aggressive and I won't be super passive aggressive to him during this episode. We want to give um, our new friend here uh, some time on the episode. So we'll be back with our free for all right after Wade reads the disclaimer. And uh, just briefly, 1517.org reminder, go check that out. I think the conference is mostly full, but there might be a few spots if you want to check that out. They have launched, I know, another podcast. Is it... Hidden Streams? Something like that, yeah. Um, I didn't quite... Which a, a friend of mine, Ed Killian, is uh, a part of and working on, pastor out in Beverly Hills. Um, oh, so yeah. you can check that out if He's you good. want to. Um, the blogs are still going. You got any in the hopper for them, Mike? For, no, I don't think so. I had two that just came out. You just had a couple, too. Yeah. So we got to work on more of those. But here's our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear. You hear how well I did that ellipses, by the way? Mm -hmm. I nailed it. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, 
Tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. One second, Mike. You know what we need to put in here? Hmm. I feel like I really nailed the ellipses, like I nailed the donkey impression earlier. Mm-hmm. I would like to see us put a semicolon in here and see how well I can do with that. I think I, I think I could do a semicolon pause really well. We can do that. Um, also, will you maybe later give us your impression of a donkey? I feel like it'd be too loud coming through here because you no, can't you can't not, do a donkey I'm not quietly. Gonna, I'm not going to force you to do, to do I'll that. I'll think about it. Okay. I was trying to pause and see how many times Mike could point at me before I got started. So this, he does this very, your, your he does this very aggressive pointing. Like when he wants me to do he's like, come on, you're up. <laughs> that brings us to our free-for-all where we discuss the pressing issues of the day. And the day on which we're recording this, so it, it is not Peter's fault this week if this episode is out late. Um, we had an episode set up for Thursday and it didn't work out. Um, so, But that was Mrs. Hermanson messed that up. So it really is Peter's Peter's fault because he should be the head of his household, shouldn't he? Well, I want to apologize to Amy if she's listening to this right now. (laughs) First off, and then uh, it was it was my fault too. We got in here, of course, it was, and we were talking, and we did talk about Milton, but we just we didn't record it, which is an integral part of podcasting. So, um, I don't think it's anyone's fault. Um, So I just want to go on the record with that. You're very kind today. So today's episode, which is being recorded on Tuesday, will be out when Peter gets a chance to do it. Um, but this Tuesday is not just any Tuesday it's Super in Tuesday. America. I know we have a lot of listeners outside of America, um, a lot of Albanian friends. I think the numbers I are still what, really good in Albania. What their what their election cycle, they have fun names. Like we have Super if Tuesday. If Albania does? Yeah. That would, um, feel free to email us and let us know. Um did you say the name or? Super Tuesday, yes. I was leading up to it. I was going to say which in America is and then let you guys say. It's Super Tuesday because why is it super? Because this was, I think, the day the first Superman movie came out. No. There's like, what, 1,200, 1,300 delegates at play, hmm. which doesn't really matter for the Republicans right now because it appears President Trump is going to win the Republican nomination. Uh based on how things have gone so far, although there is that uh, Zoltan, transhumanist guy, running, um, which I'm somewhat interested in, but if you're going to upload your consciousness, I want to I meet the tech department first, right? So, um, and uh, so for the Democrats, this is very important. And we're not going to talk about who's running or who might win, although it's gotten interesting. Some people are dropping out. Mike, your Globa charge is over. You predicted. Yep. But I did predict that Pete, Mayor Pete would drop out, first one to drop out, so I did get that right. And I had thought Bloomberg, and he is struggling. He's spending a lot of money, but he's struggling. I would compare him to, like, the Detroit Lions. Right. <laughs> yeah, but did, yeah, Detroit does spend a lot of they, money. They, they like, do who spend. spends a lot of money? Like right. a franchise that spends a lot of money. and is Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although they kind of got screwed, of course, so... I think the Dodgers win this year, but that's a different free fall. I hope the Astros focus. win just because I know it'll get no. you upset. Focus. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So there's like 1,213 delegates in play, and everybody's focused on the presidential election. So I thought a fun free-for-all topic would be, what is a political office? And we talked about it before, and we decided not to limit it to elected office. But what's a political office uh, that maybe we overlook the importance of that actually impacts us a fair amount that we don't think about? People turn out for president. In Congress, they'll kind of turn out. But then you have like the local elections, and only a few people come. So a political office, um, and we said it could be appointed or elected, that we maybe don't think about that much that actually is pretty darn important. And uh, since I said I still have to think of stuff for it, I'm going to throw it to you first, Mike. Um, yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone first. Um, <laughs> I got one. Go ahead. I was thinking uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, maybe, which is yeah. it's tough because it could be political or military. But That's a good one. I've always wondered how much – how much say they have because they probably have more direct contact with all the other leaders of the military, uh, even more so than the Secretary of Defense, maybe. So that I think that is a uh, a good one. And probably how much say really depends on the president, huh? If it's one that right. <clears throat> kind of listens or not listens, and or just goes to Twitter back and, and forth on that. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. All right, I think that's a good one. Mike, so, like one? ways and means, that committee probably. I know I've heard that it's that it's fairly important, you know, but it's not something that if you ask the average person who is the chairman of the ways and means committee, I mean, I couldn't answer that right now, um, unless something kind of goes wrong. So, I, I think that some of those committee things. I would also think that there's probably somebody in the Supreme Court that's not necessarily an elected official. So, I'm going outside that. Like just the person who runs the calendar. You know what I mean? Like they're those things are. So you're not even talking political office uh, now. That, you're yeah, talking I'm going way out a little bit. Obscured. Um, yeah, some obscure kind of thing. So I, I, I would think that that uh, whoever's running the IRS, Treasury Chair, ways, ways and means. That's kind of money stuff. You know that that affects things. I think more than we'd like to admit. Is Maxine Waters ways and means? I don't know. Oh, we'll have to look that up. All right, you look that up. I'm going to go with, uh, this is one that I only know about because one of the people running kept texting me in a local election coming up here. And uh, I have a, a really, it's a it's a rule that I will not vote for anyone who texts me. Um, and, uh, and so I finally texted them back and said, you know, I won't vote for anyone who texts me. But they were running for a position that I didn't really know what it was, and so I had to kind of look into it so I could vote against this person. <laughs> and uh, um, that was Comptroller. Oh, oh yeah. You guys know what yeah. a Comptroller is? Yeah. Uh, it's like the financial. So like, yeah. so, like, Milwaukee needs a Comptroller, and if it's going to get anything done, it needs money. It goes through that office. And so right. he's okay. kind of the purse strings, or she. Right. Um, and uh, so I'm going to say... Comptroller is up there because I didn't even know what it was, but that once I looked it up, it's responsible. Right, for and I'm I'm glad you brought this up, just because I think, just being semi-serious here, that we do put too much emphasis on the executive branch, and I think the executive branch has gotten bigger than it should be, and blah blah blah. But like county commissioner, probably yeah. affects my life a heck of a lot more, mm -hmm. and has more power. It can put and can put a stop to a lot of things. I'm guessing comptroller as well, and we should maybe pay attention to who the heck that is. Yeah, because I'm guessing like even the roads, like the money for that mm -hmm. probably goes through the comptroller. The other one, 
Um, something they do in my my wife's hometown. So shout out to Eustisford, Wisconsin, um, which is a small town. It used to have a huge plastic cow um, out like fiberglass, <laughs> and they got rid of that. Um, but I really love that cow. And on our wedding invitations, my wife had me draw the directions, and then she wasn't thrilled when I drew a giant cow and said, turn right, and the cow. Um, but they actually have an election for their coroner. Wow, yeah. And yeah, right. that probably is a pretty important gig, too, because uh, like you get, are not officially people. dead, like not being taxed right. anymore. Until they they you have are, multiple uh, people running for that in Houston? Yeah, they have signs and everything. People put signs up. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you're not talking the actual doing the embalming and all that kind of stuff. That's no. I think he's just the one who kind of goes and kicks you a little (laughs) bit and is like, "Hey, hey," (laughs) and then then you're officially dead. What does that pay? You know, I've thought about running for it, but you have to be a resident. But I thought it'd be a pretty cool thing to run for. Um, And I looked it up at one point, and I couldn't find. I can't remember. Like if you were the pastor in Houston, you'd be like, "I'm going there anyway." It's it's mostly, I think, for the power. It's not so much a financial reimbursement type situation. Interesting. But that is, I mean, um, the doctor saying you're dead is one thing, but you are not dead in the government's eyes. Right. That is interesting. Until the coroner says so. Richard Neal, a uh, Democrat from Massachusetts, is the Richard Neal. is the uh, uh, hmm. Ways and Means chair, and Maxine Waters is the House Financial Services. He's on the ah, House yes. Financial Services Committee. Ah, yes, that's so. very ironic. That was a good topic. You got anything else to add? I want to say Comptroller came up in the news Within the year, there's been so many scandals against, or so or or so-called scandals against Trump. But then you look into them more, and sometimes they aren't much of a big deal. But one of them had to do with a comptroller. Someone, huh. someone accused. Ah, I forget what it was. But it seems like comptroller would be one who really could, like embezzle or <coughs> cause a lot of trouble if they yeah. wanted to. What I didn't get, what I still haven't figured out, is why it's comptroller. So Instead like of like controller. controller. Yeah. I actually was. A, I thought maybe like, they get a computer as part of the deal. <laughs> and then they control from the computer. So like in the 80s, maybe when having a computer was a big deal. They call it comptroller. To get people to run, you know. <laughs> but uh, could be. are you looking that up, Mike? Yeah. So um, put together controller and um, computation calculation. Uh, yeah, it's like an account controller. gig, so that makes yep. sense. Yep. There you go. All right. Mm. Did you did you vote for comptroller? I I know. I was going to ask who you voted against. I didn't know. If you... Yeah, I mean, let me know. I too get annoyed with uh, people that call me. In fact, uh, I have the previous person in my office um, was must have given to one at least one Republican. Um, oh, too many. Me, we won't yeah. say who was in your office previously, but too many. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you used to get phone calls all the time. Yeah. Phone calls all the time from different Republican groups. From like, your school phone. On my school phone. Yeah. I don't, yeah. You don't, we don't even like. I don't it even, used to be great really? to listen in on, yeah. Uh, I don't even get. So at one point, this was just a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I finally said, I will literally vote Democrat if you don't get me off this list. I mean, yeah. like for no other reason than you keep calling me. I got text messages from, from Bernie, and I don't understand that because like – I get National Review magazine. <laughs> what list am I on that's getting me burning text? Bernie stuff, uh, and yeah. I'd never got any really from a politician until I got it from the, the comptroller yeah. guy. Yeah. That that has to cost them more votes than get them votes. I, I have to imagine people. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it, it just turns people off. Like I don't think so. I think if I see a text message from a comptroller and then I go to vote 
and I see comptroller, I think to myself, I don't know what that is, but I got a text from this guy, so sure, why not? See, I think I, I just, I guess I would think that I a think lot of people would be high. like, this guy bothered me, so I don't want that okay. guy. I think it, we have a higher level of spite, maybe, than the average. I human. want my comptroller to be seen and not heard. <laughs> you know? Seen and Which, not heard. <laughs> yeah. That's what you want to do. Which is why you want to be it. You just want the power. You just want no, to I be, want to be the, corner. Seen in the, <laughs> I, the corner. The oh, corner okay. should be heard. Because okay. he, he's the guy who says, dead. Except the yep. people that listen to the corner are the ones that can't hear because they're dead. <laughs> That's true. All right, excellent. Anything else? Now I'll stop. I could keep going, but I'll stop. For our main topic, uh, Dr. Andrew Schmigi, who is uh, our Spanish teacher, professor up here, and, and new resident of the third floor. So this is your second school year, correct? Yep. yep. And uh, you got kicked out of the the modern arts building because it's decrepit, and we got you got you got, got upgraded, voluntarily moving, kicked out, moving on up, yeah. moving on up to the third floor Literally here. Literally, and and so why don't you first tell us about um, you know your education, where you're from? anything you want about yourself and then you can go into uh, just the basics of your dissertation and then Wade will interrupt you. Sure. Great. So I grew up in Chesney, Michigan on the farm, went to Michigan Lutheran Seminary. So I'm a Wells product all the way through Mich- uh, MLS. Which is a I, high school. We should, we should say um, Michigan Lutheran Seminary is actually a high school, not yeah. a seminary. Who right. else went there, Mike? I went there. <laughs> two Cardinals. I'm sitting with That's two Cardinals. Right. That's right. That's right. In Saginaw, Michigan. In Sag- yeah. Saginaw. I lived in the dorm. It's great. Yeah. Sag- Saginasty. Saginasty. We, we don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I did Saginaw. Awesome. Saginaw awesome is a good one. Yeah. yeah. I did spend one year at Central Michigan University too, till I realized I wanted to be a teacher. Fire up chips. Fire up chips. That's right. Still got the T-shirt. Um, and then I decided I wanted to be a teacher and said, if I'm going to be a teacher, why not do this Wells thing where all my other friends are anyway? So. And I went to MLC and uh, graduated from there in 2011. So Martin Luther College in New Ulm, Minnesota? Yep. 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 And then where to? And then I deferred a call right after that and uh, went right to do my master's at Middlebury College because they have a pretty accelerated master's in Spanish. They have good, uh, well-known language programs. I did a summer semester there in the summer of 2011 then the school year in Madrid, and then another summer uh, in summer of 2012. And after that, I taught at Bethany Lutheran College as an adjunct for a year. And then after that, uh, I used that year to apply to the 11 <coughs> PhD programs nice. that I applied to, which is fun and <laughs> costly. And then uh, I got into Madison, which was my top choice, along with um, University of Chicago, which I didn't get into. But I, I wanted to go to Madison anyway. So, and then I was there for five or six years. Five years physically in Madison, six years till, till I uh, defended and graduated in May. And then right 
to here to Wisconsin with And right here. Yep. And, and we're glad to have you. You have other interests. Tell us about your other interests. Like, uh, when I get home, I talk to my cats for a little while, and then in Spanish I, or English, a little bit, a little mix, and then I, uh, I take, like is like, would that be funny? Like one of them Spanish and one of them's English, and yeah. so you have like. Like you're talking to one, you talk to the Spanish, and then yeah, yeah. See, si, si, senor, it's <laughs> it's the tiempo de comer. Yes, you too, Nan. It's time to eat. Come. But uh, yeah, um, and then with the rest of my time, what do I do? I read books, I play violin, and I play piano as much as I can. Nice. So I try to I try to do an hour a day of each of those. Which so cats, but no dogs, huh? I ha- I would I grew up with dogs. I would do dogs, but. I grew up on a farm where my dog lived outside all year, which I think is a foreign concept to a lot of people yeah, nowadays. It is. The fact that the dog, like the, the, the dog sleeps in the barn always, even when it gets down to like zero degrees. Now, if it gets into the negatives, we bring it inside maybe. But, and you think it's cruel, but then you go in the barn on one of those cold nights and you kind of go down into the straw where it's mm-hmm. pretty warm down there. It's uh. nice. That's so bad. All right, so tell me about your dissertation. Uh, the joke off the air is that you don't remember the exact title. Which, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like it was ten years ago. It was like, like it was, two years ago. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't remember the title of it. Uh, to for the tell life us, of me, tell, but. make up a title. Tell us what it's about. Uh, let's see here. Early modern, early modern uh, relationships between Christian and and Muslims, and it deals mostly with polemical aspects in a select couple of texts. So, um, like I, I went to Martin Luther College where you have to take a ton of religion classes. And so I was very uh, knowledgeable in this religious thing. And so I thought I'd take that direction as far as my the topic of my dissertation. But then I was all, we all, we, in Madison, you also have to take another language or two uh, it's as one of your requirements for the PhD, and I took Arabic because why not? Because mm-hmm. uh, I have free tuition, so let's do this thing that I'll never be able to study anywhere else because I can't just pick it up. Like uh. knowing Spanish, you can pick up some French and some Italian and basically read it and get the gist, but Arabic is nothing like that. So I took Arabic, and I thought, how can I connect this religious thing and this Arabic thing? And so that was kind of the point of departure for coming up with an idea. And then there was this particular text by Ibn Qasim al-Hajri, who was this Morisco. And what that means is um, in 1492, three big things happened in 1492 in Spain. The the Jews were expelled from Spain. Columbus found, uh, uh, discovered the the Americas. And the, the, Christ, the Spanish Christians were able to finally defeat the kingdom of Granada. In, in the south, in Andalusia. That was not a very woke year. For <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, and so after that, they, uh, the Spanish government, uh, Isabel and Ferdinand, began trying to, they had a new problem on their hands then, which was, what do we do with these Muslims who've been living in this peninsula for 800 years? And by the time they're actually expelled between 1609 and 1614, they will have been in they would have been in the peninsula for 900 years. So um, that's a huge amount of time to just take these people and then kick them out. So those, that's what a, 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 a morisco would then be 
between the time of 1492 and 1609, 1614 or so, um, Spanish Muslims. Okay. And so then what texts were you... Were you looking at in particular? So the the two texts in particular kind of got me going, and then I kind of like used one text to launch me into a variety of other topics that launched me into other texts. So this this first text was uh, Ibn Qasim al Hajjari's. Um, it's called. Oh, I am terrible with names today. Uh, it, it's a it's a book that he wrote after he escaped Spain because the Moriscos were being uh, oppressed between 1492 and 1609. They were more and more, the Christian government was putting these restrictions on how they could practice Islam. Um, they couldn't really, they couldn't practice Islam after a while. And then little and little by little, they couldn't even speak Arabic. They couldn't dress according to uh, Islam. So um, it just became more onerous, and he eventually escaped and uh, did a bit of traveling, and eventually he, he wrote this, this book um, t- uh, that outlines his travels, and it has a lot of polemical aspects to it. And what I mean by polemical is it has uh, a polemical text would be one where uh, Islam, for example, defends why Islam is right and Christianity is wrong, as opposed to a, a Christian polemic would be, it's, it's pointing out why Islam is wrong and Christianity is right. Mm-hmm. So and it's usually combative. Yes, like exactly. Mike was with me this morning. Exactly with the with the donkey stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what your PhD? What is it specifically in? I mean, it's very interdisciplinary. What? So my PhD is um, uh, a doctor of philosophy and Spanish. Culture and literature. Okay. Yeah, technically. Um, so, I mean, I wanted, I'm a servant, I consider myself a Cervantista. I, uh, Don Quixote, uh, studying Miguel de Cervantes. But it's really hard to write a dissertation on Cervantes. There's such a huge body of criticism yeah. and, you know, 500 years of, of. Yeah. And for anybody who knows grad school, they, they learn quickly. You've got to find a niche that's not just an echo, and exactly <coughs> where you can actually make a an a, a contribution. You want to find a, right. a, a lacuna, right? An opening, and so that makes right. a lot of sense. What um, so the the focus of the dissertation then is looking at it's not just religious debate then it's it's debate about policy and 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 things like that. And so it's political and religious it's aspects. It's mostly reli- it's mostly religious. So. Um, like you just said, as a grad student, you find that you ha- you have to find something that isn't written about, you know, ad infinitum already, right? And so there's this text called by Antonio de Sosa called Topografia de Argel, so topography of Algiers, and it's a huge, it's a huge. Um, Was he related to Sammy, by the way? Sosa? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. Maybe. I maybe. He, I heard he was juicing too. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Um, so th- this this work is composed of four sections. First one is a topography, which is kind of it just uh, Antonio de Sosa just kind of describes what it's like in Algiers, the people, um, the the customs, the practices, and then the other three are. Dialogues, which was a common form of, uh, it was a literary genre in the Renaissance, early modern period. Um, sim, I would say, kind of similar to like Plato's Plato's dialogues, where 
one person does much of the talking and then the other person is kind of set up as a, a almost a dummy questioner mm-hmm. sometimes. And so and, and he's, just, he's the mic. I like to call that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then, so there are three dialogues and Sosa really rails against this one, this one character in Algerian um, society, which is the, the, in English has adopted the French word for it, which is a marabou, or in Spanish it would be a morabuto. And this is a type of religious leader. And so Sosa's constantly railing against this guy. And then the final dialogue of this work is called Dialogo de los Morabutos. Uh, so dialogue about mor- marabous. And so I was like, what the heck is this this person? Why is he why is he really going after these people? And I started to look into it a little bit and there's virtually almost nothing written about huh. these marabous. So marabous are still a thing, but it's more occidental Africa, so western Africa and um not southern Africa. Yeah, I would say western Africa. Um it's not so much a thing in in Algeria today, or maybe it is honestly. But, but it's something in Islam then. Or, yeah. So <laughs> my, my or it's something that appears outside Islam too. No. Okay. No. So Marbu is always a, some sort of leader in Islam. Yes. So my first chapter deals mostly with trying to put a historical context to what this character is, so that when we look at Sosa's criticisms later, they're a bit more contextualized and. Uh, Basically, my conclusion is that Sosa is using this this uh, uh, Islamic religious character as a straw man to go after Islam in general and pick apart why Islam is unfollowable, mm-hmm. is is silly. Mm-hmm. Now, are you looking at texts as well that were? Is that the main focus, or you're also looking at Islamic texts doing the same with Christianity? Then it I am, like? I, yeah. So it's a, I try to you know do both a little a little bit of each because I, Sosa is the I would say the main text that I use to launch into topics, but I use uh, equally Christian and and yeah. Islamic texts. And when I say Islamic texts, I mean the main texts I use are Morisco texts. So the origin these people were Spanish, yeah. but then got out of the peninsula and then wrote something. So an interesting thing to me with that, and, and that's similar to what I did in, in my dissertation um, with the Adi, uh, controversies over Adiaphora, looking at the Lutherans and Flacius, and then the um, uh, Zwinglian exiles who go back to Edwardian England, so reform in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting then that you chose the Moriscos because they're both then going to be somewhat cognizant of audience and an interesting thing with these texts and so i'll have a question and then we can talk more about it maybe but um is when you think about audience audience often will then determine what the text includes and the tone that the text takes um these texts that you're looking at were they who is the intended audience is it just simply um the learned you know imams and clerics is it meant to persuade on some level the public or policymakers um um, the what's the years again of these? So Sosa published, or Sosa was um, probably d- 
dead when his book got published early 1600s okay so these are being um printed i take it then yeah. too so so the printing process factored in so it's popular it's possible then they're meant to reach a somewhat popular audience but who what's the intended audience of these works whether it be for the author or for the printers because sometimes too Right, the printer has a different intended audience than the right. author. Yeah, that's a great question, and that's one that's one of the conclusions I, you know, I, I bring up is that these were probably written not to be read by the other side. They were probably propagandistic in in nature, just to you know make their own co-religionist to keep their people on the yes, same page. Right, because uh, because especially for Christians, well, and, and Christians and Muslims, renegadism was a huge thing in the Mediterranean. Um, Christians a lot of times just wanted to get out, and so when they got to Algiers, they had no problem re uh, renouncing Christianity because many times if they were taken captive too in the Mediterranean, <laughs> and then taken to Algiers, sold as slaves, if they didn't give up their Christianity, many times they would be sold as rowers in galleys, and you got like a one-year, you got a yeah. couple, couple year life expectancy mm -hmm. rowing as a... You probably got pretty yoked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, many times they would just renounce their Christianity and have no problem with it. Um, that's interesting, too, because um, the Lutherans uh, like to use um, the image of Mamluks, um, mm. which is people who... Um, had converted to Islam and then became important military leaders or otherwise leaders as mm -hmm. kind of like turncoats. Um, so yeah. th the outsider nature of these then, you know, that they're writing for their own people and then they want to present the outsider as much as outsider as possible, right? Mm -hmm. They're as foreign as can be. Mm -hmm. um, a question that comes to mind then is, since they're writing for their own audiences and it sounds like not necessarily replying to each other, um, do they latch on similar areas where they fault the other for instance um does the uh the 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 i take it these are roman catholic authors the christian authors yes does the catholic author lack on to latch on to the um islam's emphasis on the oneness of god at the expense of the trinity does the islamic author latch onto the trinity or are there commonalities in the areas that they think it's beneficial for them with their audience to attack in the other faith. Yeah. Uh, so yes, my f the first chapter of my dissertation is about <laughs> marabouts in general, and then my my thesis, which um, my thesis is that you know they they're basically using these people as straw men for all of Islam. But my second chapter is on miracles and supernatural activity, and so it's really interesting to see how uh, Islam and Christianity went back and forth in in uh terms of um you how miracles were used as uh propaganda to justify their own religion and equally to show that the religion of the other was there's just there's no way it was like idiotic and i mean there's there's some there's really old texts that talk about how luis de granada says one thing that uh, wow, Christianity, our, our religion is supported by all these miracles. That, so that's how we know it's true. But Islam, they have no miracles. They, they won their support uh, through the battlefield. And so it's, it's just kind of crazy how they use miracles as, as uh, signs of that, our, that we're correct and you're wrong. And, and, and so basically the Islamic the, authors would do the same? I mean, they, they well, claim Islam, miracles. Islam realized early on 
when Islam was burgeoning uh, in, what are, what are we talking about, the 700s or so, in the 800s, when a lot of these people in, you know, present day, uh, the Middle East, they were beginning to convert. And so is Islam was realizing that Christians, they got to leg up on this with this miracle stuff. Like people, people eat this up. So we got to have our own miracles too. And so uh, miracles about Muhammad began to proliferate too, that many of them were very similar, um, similar to Christian miracles, but just Muhammad did them. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting because things like that will come up either, even within um, what we would call today interdenominational uh, <clears throat> but in the process of confessionalization among Lutherans, Catholic Reformed. But usually, um, while the Catholics will point to, well, still today within Catholicism, miracles are very important. I mean, it's part of the canonization process of a saint. Um, but the Lutherans on the flip side would usually point to, like, omens and signs as being judgment upon opponents rather than necessarily um, pointing to miracles of, you know, this person did this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that's a very 16th, 17th century early modern thing to have play in what um so miracles is a big one what maybe if we take the islamic critiques first what were the the chief things that the um the islamic authors you looked at um see as problematic in christianity and as uh um, convincing right that they choose to use for their audience so most the the biggest islamic criticism of christianity was that christianity believe believes in more than one god right which makes sense because that's still a critique used right. today. Yeah. Right. And then also communion, just the, the idea of eating, eating Christ. or huh. That's just strange. Yeah, you know? which is the early church-faced yeah. accusation. And there, you know, there's some friction with the use of images in Christianity too. Anything with the Christian life or do they not really appeal to the, you know, sometimes you'll look at your opponents and try to um, well, either fault their their religious life as being unattainable or as being too lax? Well, talk, from the perspective of Moriscos, they just got kicked out of, of Spain. And so one thing they would say is, how can you do this? Like, uh, uh, this is not charity or this is anti what Christianity says. You know, this is cruel. Yeah. Um, what about the, the Christian critiques of Islam then? Um so one thing my dissertation does and what um, Antonio de Sosa does in his text is that he doesn't really, he, he really focuses on popular, he exploits the, the popular mystical um, things that, that some of these marabous would do. And so he doesn't do the typical attacks that Christianity will do against Islam. He, he really ridicules these marabouts because of all the strange things they do that is outside of, of uh, Islam's uh, official dogma, which is what makes it so, so curious. Um, what, are they, what are they doing that's so macabre? So, so marabouts uh, began in what are called ribats. So when Islam was expanding, they needed. They created a bunch of fortresses uh, to where they were expanding, to you know stake out their territory, and they were called ribats. And so the the leaders of these would. That's where the marabu comes from, okay. ribat, right? So the original purpose was for these people to kind of like be a religious figure in these fortresses, 
but then it kind of just uh, Sufism began to be a thing. Shiism, so the more mystical side, as opposed to Sunnism, and uh, then they just they just basically became these these popular mystics that are outside uh, official doctrine, and. So one thing that Sosa does is he takes some of these most more obscure things that these funny guys do and really exploits them and basically then sh- shows, talks to Islamic people saying, you're going to follow this guy? Like this guy does these things? So for example, there's a marabou outside the city of Algiers who he who's he's described as crazy he lives in his he's a hermit he lives by himself he does all of his necessities out there and then when people go to pay him homage and stuff he comes out and throws his necessities at them and so Sosa's like you guys follow this guy <laughs> there was another one who would go around and and make a spectacle so he would he would be able to um summon this this jinn this demon angel yeah. jinn character and he would make a spectacle of spectacle of it he'd be mad when the jinn wouldn't come and then the jinn would finally come but only he could only he could hear the jinn the jinn could only speak to him so um jinn makes mike act crazy too <laughs> <laughs> and then uh he would begin to you know fight with the jinn and and it was just a big spectacle then they would go to the mosque and answer questions eventually this guy you know took his business outside of the city and uh people began to visit him mostly women and when it came out that he was um having a good time with the women that would come out there he got expelled from the from the area so sosa would take these people who who just kind of do more outrageous things mm-hmm. and and say, this is your religion. How can you follow this? Now, uh, now, now but to, to answer one of your previous questions was one, one main criticism of Christianity was how it's so, how, how like with the Reformation, it became split. It, so their argument would be, how can Christianity not be unified? How can it be true if it can't even, if it's not unified? Which thankfully no one brings up today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, because there's, couple of there's more than just protestants there's a lot of different but uh so one thing sosa does and i don't think he exploits this enough is he kind of refers to these like refers to these people's act these marabou's activity also as inconsistent how how can islam is inconsistent because these people do this these people do this what um what's their familiarity with each other's actual religious texts so the Christian authors, to what extent are they familiar with the Quran? Yeah. Um, and the Islamic authors, to what extent are they familiar with the Christians? It sounds like a lot of the critiques of each other are based on experience of each other's practice and yeah. the you know the testimony of of in Christians and, and Muslims mm-hmm. in general. Um, is there you know you're a little beyond my time period? We both do early modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the formula of Concord shows up. My knowledge drops off a fair amount um, until modern Germany. Uh, Luther, you know, will be one of the first to really encourage the publication of the Quran, and mm-hmm. he gives a preface for it. But even that translation is not great, mm-hmm. right? Um, to what extent? I mean, at, at this point, is is there greater knowledge of what the official texts actually say, or is is it largely 
they're going off of what they've gleaned from experience. They're mostly going off of what early Christians, and so when I say early Christians, uh, I, I guess what I mean is the first Christians that began trying to um, <coughs> trying to prove Islam wrong. So we're talking the 700s, 800s, 900s. Uh, most of them just follow the same themes that those early Christians followed in their polemical texts, which was attacking the person of Muhammad, labeling him this lascivious uh, womanizer who was kind of crazy himself. Um, and which is, again, why Sosa's text is interesting because it it doesn't really rail against Islam in the same way as that this genre ne- generally does. Because these, these polemical texts, are just hundreds and hundreds of pages of it's just really tedious stuff and they all say the same thing but Sosa's text is a little bit different which kind of drew my attention after a while because he focuses on these popular mystics to what extent are they aware of each other the people that you studied are they are they aware of each other's writings Sosa probably didn't know about Al-Hajjari and vice versa there's a there's one guy called Leo Leo Africanus, who he was a little bit more well known because he was abducted on the high seas in the Mediterranean and taken as a slave to uh, Italy, but his his ability his language ability. So my fourth chapter is on Arabic and how Arabic kind of served as a, if you knew Arabic you were you were useful because you could in the peninsula you were useful because you could proselytize to these muslims these moriscos and so the that's what the last chapter is about but this leo africanus he uh he was originally a morisco and then he got abducted on, he lived in north africa for a while got abducted in the mediterranean and sold as a slave in italy but because he was uh, adept with languages he just kind of worked his way up and eventually got to know the pope got to know a bunch of the huh. uh, the high church officials and so he go his his uh, probably the most common way he's he's referred to is by Leo Africanus which basically and it was Pope Leo at the at the time huh. so he got his name from from the pope nice and they were pals and the pope the, these these church figures were interested in him too because he could help them with all their arabic what um <clears throat> So with the Moriscos, had there been, so I, I know, uh, for instance, with the, the Jews in Spain, there had been a number who had converted um, either nominally or sincerely, mm-hmm. and you had then questions about, well, what do you do with the Jews who have converted? Was there anything like that with these Moriscos? Are there some who Definitely. have become Christians, but they're viewed as, um, because their ethnic origin Definitely. is different, or their families, go, maybe going back generations, are they all forced out, or yeah. is there still a presence of some who have converted? There were some exemptions, but the but not many in in the case of the Moriscos. Most of them were expelled. The most famous uh, text that deals with this topic is a section of Don Quixote when Cervantes is parodying the actual proclamation of uh, of the. So Don Quixote is published in 1605 and 1616, and this is. The second part is 1616, and uh, this comes from, oh no, 1615, uh, 1616, oh wait, 1615, either one. But um, So he parodies the actual expulsion proclamation, 
And he, one of the characters that enters into the novel is a Morisco who was pushed out, but he's coming back to try to gather his things and, and get some old stuff. Ricote. And that's parodying too because El Valle de Ricote, the, the Valley of Ricote, was the most pop. It was in Valencia, so eastern Spain, was the most populous. It was well known, well well known to be populated by Moriscos who p- could pretty much live their lives speaking Arabic, and um, he, and so the, he parodies this proclamation, and he this Morisco that comes back, talks to Sancho Panza. And he brings up these these people like I know I know many people who actually did convert to Christianity, and they were expelled, nonetheless. And so that section of Don Quixote is really trying to elicit uh, elicit sympathy for those people because, as Christians, you're supposed to be sympathetic and and uh, have charity and, uh, but then you don't believe these people. Now. Is Cervantes being a little uh, disingenuous? Probably because the vast majority of the ones that converted just converted to stay. What um along those lines, then um something that's interesting about this period too is we in the twentieth century, twenty first century, we like to say that's politics, that's religion, um, and I think we sometimes underestimate how. In the early modern period, and especially in in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. you just can't say that in the same way. Um, to what extent are these texts uh, as political as they are religious? It's intertwined, so is <coughs> and, it and equally so on both sides. Or yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, Isabel and Ferdinand are referred to as los reyes católicos, the the Catholic kings. Um, Charles V, uh, or how do you, how do you guys refer to Charles? Do you guys call him Charles V or Charles I? I call him fifth. Charles in charge. <laughs> well, we, normally we say fifth, right? I mean, yeah. we, we would not, okay. if we said Charles I, we'd have to stop and think. So yeah. Charles I, I guess, would, would refer to him as the first Spanish. Right, Spanish. Right, and, uh, right. Anyways, so, uh, Charles V was, you know, very... Catholic. Philip II was, you know, very Catholic and a micromanager, which was probably why his administration was garbage. But uh, so, yeah, t- totally intertwined. Is the, the Morisco text that you looked at, are they primarily being written because of this expulsion then? Is that the prime motivator for them writing yeah. and criticizing Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first, the first chapter of it is the longest chapter and it deals with with his uh his oppression while being in spain his flight some f- funny occurrences that happened along the way and it's very sarcastic too so it's it's a it's a great read sosa's and and al hajiri's texts are very sarcastic and they're many times laughing at the laughing at the um opponent it's it's kind of good stuff <laughs> what um to what extent were the moriscos assimilated to spanish life before the expulsion depend where they lived many of them were 100 percent assimilated they didn't even know arabic so many of them that got expelled complained because they arrived in tunis tunisia and they didn't know any arabic and so there's also texts from 
Um, Maurice goes in Tunisia, but... Times but, don't change, uh, huh? I mean, the, the same <laughs> debates come up today, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, there, I mean, there were schools that had to come up in Tunisia to teach these Moriscos Spanish, or not Spanish, uh, Arabic, because they didn't know it. And the, um, what was their activity level in, in Spanish life? I mean, were, were any of these Moriscos, did they have any political t- capital? Were they politically involved before this? or they were? There, there were Moriscos in the government, yeah. Um, and the prime motivator then for the expulsion is just with Isabella and Ferdinand, they, they see so Spain the ex- as Spanish and, and The expulsion Catholic. is 1609. So we're talking about, uh, this is after Carlos V, after Charles V, after Philip II. This is. I mean, is it though, does it go back to this notion you mentioned that they're referred to as the Catholic kings? Is it going back to like this, this process of Spain's it political does, and national yeah. identity yeah. rooted in um, what Ferdinand and Isabella are doing totally. and, and they see themselves as building on that or was this related to something different that they that now this policy is enacted? Yeah. If that makes sense. I would I mean, say, yeah, it has to do primarily with Spanishness or yeah. religious unity. Yeah. Huh. You got any questions? No, it's pretty interesting. I'm happy just to listen to this conversation. It's interesting. And that's a fun time because as you said, major events in 1492. But you know, from our, for our, when we talk about when we talk about Luther, we talk uh, about different reformations, and that the Lutheran Reformation was a uh, theological reformation, where perhaps in other parts of the of the church, especially in Spain, it was a uh, more law moral reformation. Let's fix the the Simon I mean, and I stuff think like that. And then also, could be though is I mean, there's there's Germans who want to latch onto Luther's reform, not necessarily for the theological reasons, but for the rising concept of Germanness, right. which and even then, Luther can play on with the right. You know, and group. then you have uh, the settle underneath all of that. Uh, what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be German? Yeah. What does it mean to be Spanish? Well, something that happened in Spain um, that made made this nationalism even more. Um, passionate was the counter-reformation so we begin to see uh, while, while in many of the Protestant areas they were get ridding, getting rid of imagery right yep. and iconoclasm in the counter-reformation places they were trying to appeal to people's emotions and so they were rapidly producing more we're talking about Jean Caravaggio who who's kind of like the big proliferator of chiaroscuro these these paintings that are very emotional that want you to now these most people in this time period couldn't read uh, the vast majority of people couldn't read but they can see mm-hmm. these these images and connect emotionally with these these uh these images Which so is quite the a counter con- kind of contrast to then the the more later muslim <laughs> an Islamic uh, way of thinking about not depicting images and not yeah. doing that. So one of the reasons that I really like Al-Hajjadi's text because, is because so he gets expelled from Spain, and, but he has to go back, he has to go to France and be a liaison for Moriscos who got expelled. Um, and when the Moriscos were expelled, they had to take French ships to northern huh. Africa and the French sailors plundered them on their way down and so Al-Hajjadi was sent as an ambassador to France to uh, to advocate for these Moriscos that that were robbed on the way hmm. and uh, where was I going with that? Why did I start talking about that? 
oh, but and so he's 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 uh, wandering around in France, which is dealing with Huguenots and problems of its own, a religious mm-hmm. uh, upheaval of its own, and eventually he gets into uh, Países Bajos, so the Low Countries. And he meets these Protestants, and he has a lot more in common with these Protestants than he does with the Catholics because he hates the Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, well, and, the, and the, I mean, the, the Calvinist Reformed sovereignty of God, iconoclasm mm-hmm. stuff, there's going to be a fair amount of contact points. Yeah, right? absolutely. Is it safe to say everyone involved doesn't like the Lutherans, though, that you studied? Ah. Or care? No, I don't think it's safe to say that oh, because really? the Lutherans were against the Catholics, and so Islam and and, and Protestantism, Lutheranism, they're all right with. Huh. But there's also too just when we think you know since we're engrossed in like Lutheran history and theology, we're thinking about Turkish Muslims, completely different on the west mm-hmm. side of the. You know what I mean? I mean, there's yeah, a whole yeah. different history of Islam. Um, you know, in the in the yeah. Iberian Peninsula, and uh, yeah. So, uh, Turkey is another. You talked earlier about political slash religious influences on why this happened. Now, there is there one political one would be more to do with um, the fear that the Moriscos would be the fifth column uh, against. To, to allow the Turks to come in and begin conquest and so of this the would Iberian be a fear beyond Spain even then oh yeah oh yeah so in uh, shoot what was the year of the Battle of Lepanto 1571 2 3 6 something in there the Battle of Lepanto happened um, in the west side of the, the Greek islands and it was seen as a big turning point in the the Western Christian Europe's uh, fight against uh, Turkey because after that it's kind of a turning point and it kind of isn't because the Christians were able to really demolish uh, the Ottomans Navy in that battle and it kind of turned the tide psychologically but the Ottomans redid their Navy even bigger than it was that year the year after their defeat in the Ponto. However, after that, they n- never really tried to get their get their navy to go conquest wise into Western Europe. So it's I guess it was kind of more of a psychological win. But anyways, the Moriscos, they were always feared to be the um, to have this uh, collusion collusion with a foreign entity which is very common well and i think you know that's something too for us to remember about this period um is still somewhat amongst protestantism uh but especially among the the catholics you still have this notion of christendom so you do have ethnic and uh national might be anachronistic but but national boundaries um i would assume to some extent too as you're getting at Yes, Turkish Muslims are not the same as as Muslims from you know from the Iberian Peninsula, but Islam is largely seen as a thing too. You know, right. when we think of the competing powers, right? It's Christianity and Islam probably more than we would think of today. Um, we might recognize, okay, if this country fights this country, this country is mostly Christian. This country is mostly. Um, right. Muslim, but it, we're thinking in national terms, so I, I would imagine that would would play into what. Um, I guess my last question would be: 
So you, you, you brought out with, with Don Quixote, and, and, and this could be a, another episode. I think that'd be a fascinating episode. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, is uh, Because these things are timely, so we're not going to get in a political debate. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think there's a lot to uh, otherness and how one sees another and how Christians might grapple with how to deal with the other when you have political and cultural things that come into play too. Um, and so in our day, right, there's debates among Christians about, well, immigration or illegal immigration or, or how you, um, assimilation and who should assimilate and how. And these things uh, have so many moving parts that can be mm-hmm. very difficult. But, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, sending people back who don't even know the language where they're going back to. And you think of some of the dreamers in America, wherever someone falls on immigration, I'm not advocating a position. Now I'll save that for another day. Um, but, uh, you know, there are instances where people might be sent back to a country that they have never experienced and they don't know the language of. Um, what is, uh, you unpacked it a little bit, uh, but with, you know, fiction can be a powerful way to address mm-hmm. this. In our own day, think movies and mm-hmm. TV shows that might address it. Um, and so maybe just somewhat briefly, and we can elaborate it in another episode. I think it would be a good one. Um, what was the what was the the strength or the the power with which Don Quixote was able to address the? Uh, oh, wh- man. Why was why was that a successful medium for it? Yeah, we should have another episode on this because um, my my dissertation advisor and I agree uh, with him kind of see one of the main questions that Don Quixote grapples with is it questions what is the value of a human being and so many so many of the episodes in the novel deal with deal with that so for example Miguel de Cervantes he was also abducted after the battle of Lepanto on his uh, meanderings through the Mediterranean he got abducted and sold as a slave into Algiers too and so there are there are episodes in the Quixote that are very autobiographical and they deal with these people are being sold as slaves into Algiers and it deals with what is the value of a human being. There are other episodes that deal with Spanish nobility mistreating mistreating common people. What is but and, and there's a lot of flipping of roles. So we have common people, common women dressed as men. We have nobles dressed down so that they can so that they can go through the countryside. Which was, you know, even just as a device for carnival or for yeah. other festivals in Europe. That rebellion. You know, it, they'd often have a day of the year even where these things would be yeah, yeah. played out. But so he's doing this in, in more in, in novel form. Sorry oh, yeah. for interrupting, but I mean, yep, it is absolutely. an interesting trope that comes up. Absolutely. So, I mean, Cervantes uses locura, uses craziness as an avenue to explore that what what's the value of of other people and so craziness is actually a theme of the time because erasmus one of his more famous um books was praise of folly right where he where he praises what this certain how would you characterize his definition of folly um this more inspired maybe the maybe the unexamined life kind of that yeah, he's getting at is yeah. you know he and more are humanists who are in on it and they understand the higher things in life and other people are right. just getting married and having kids and right. partying. And, and so Cervantes really uses locura, craziness, as an avenue to 
because who is Don Quixote? Don Quixote is the lowest level noble possible who's been stripped, who all he has is land, but he's basically poor. There's another, there's another episode in another famous Spanish text, Lazario de Tormes, de Tormes, where there's a Hidalgo who he's a noble and he has to sh you know, walk around society still wearing noble clothes, but he gets home and he actually, this is very metaphorical, but his bed is actually inside of like a tomb box thing, huh. you know? And so he plays with that a lot. Cervantes does with this Don Quixote character who, uh, thinks he's somebody else because he's read too many knight in shining armor books and goes cuckoo. Um, and then he goes around the countryside and he's able, he's able to talk to the lowest of the low, these prostitutes in these, in these inns, and then the highest of the high in the second book, in the second book, he's his, uh, asanyas, his great deeds, great deeds as in like, so just crazy deeds of the first book become a book within the book and this duke has read this book about don quixote and the duke invites don quixote into his you know into his manner yeah so don quixote is able to see all of the different echelons of society because of his craziness and so that's how he uses uh, cervantes uses it as an avenue to um an analyze society well i think i, I better not let us go too long because I, I took us a little long on the intro, Mike. You might have noticed, um, but I do think it's fascinating. Hopefully, listeners can kind of tie together um, that times change, but people not so much. Um, and th these these similar debates um, that have existed as long as there's been people and groups and tribes, um, and also the uh, the desire and the debates about methods for engaging others, right? How do we understand others? How do we um, bolster our in-group or, or weaken the out-group? And I think uh, um, I'm excited about maybe building on with the Don Quixote thing, but I think there's a, a lot that could be unpacked here and to see how they, they chose to do those so in, the, in that time. Um, one of the advantages of the gospel um, is that it, it – bestows human value on all for Christ died for all um, whether they be us or they they be the other um, and yet this is still something we wrestle with with today and I, and so I think it's it's always timely um, at the end of the day as Christians wrestle with stuff and they may fall in different places and we live in a world that's probably no less polarized religiously than before and many of the the critiques of Christianity or of Islam are uh, have not changed much from from what you mentioned. Uh, at the end of the day, when we know we're we're set free by the gospel, um, we're turned outside of us for the the good of our neighbor. Um, we want to study these things. We want to learn about our neighbor. We want to serve as best we can. Um, but ultimately, all we can really do is is what Andrew. Let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a jank I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down
I don't care what